Satan never creates anything. All he ever does is pervert things. And Satan didn't create tempers. God is the one that created a temper, the ability to get mad, and he placed it on the inside of every one of us. It's not just a few people that get angry. All of us have the capacity. Now, you may manifest it differently. Some people get violent and, and uh, vent their anger. Other people may turn it inward, but all of us have anger, and it's because God gave it to us. And so the first step in dealing with anger is recognizing that there is a right use of it. And last night I used Ephesians 4.26. It says, be angry and sin not. It's a command from God to be angry. There's a righteous anger, a righteous indignation. And it says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. That doesn't mean just confess your anger before you go to bed every night. That means get angry with the righteous anger and don't ever let it fall asleep. You got to stir yourself up. You got to maintain that righteous anger. And I used a lot of scriptures, even talking about Jesus, how he got angry at twice and drove the money changers out of the temple. And he didn't do it apologetically saying, I'm sorry, guys, I've got to do this and try and lessen the blow. Man, he was mad. He overturned the money changers and beat people and drove them out. And he was sinless. That is a proper use of anger. And I made a lot of comments last night about how that one of the reasons our society is going the direction that it has is because Christians no longer hate that which is evil. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy, and every evil way, and the froward mouth do I hate, Proverbs 8, 13. And we quit hating evil. We tolerate things. We're afraid we're going to offend somebody. Now, there's a difference and there's a fine line here between using this, what I'm saying, as an opportunity for you to be a bigot and critical and having a spirit of criticism and stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm saying that there is a right way to be angry. We need to be angry and sin not. You know what? When terrorists attack this nation, it should make every one of us angry. And yet I've heard a lot of ministers say, well, they're God's creatures too. And we need to walk in love and let's turn the other cheek and let's not retaliate and let's just trust that God's going to do things. That is absolutely stupid. Was that too subtle? Anybody missed that one? That is absolutely stupid. That's not what the scripture says. I gave scriptures on this last night. Jesus said, if my kingdom were of this earth, then would my servants fight. When you're fighting a spiritual battle, you have to win a spiritual battle with spiritual weapons. But when you're fighting a physical battle, if somebody came in here tonight with a gun and they were going to terrorize and start killing, I guarantee you I'd do everything I could to overpower that person. I wouldn't use more force than necessary. You know, if they were carrying a soap gun and not a real gun, I wouldn't go and kill them. But I guarantee you something's wrong with that person. I'd take that gun from them. I'd overpower them and I wouldn't feel bad about hitting them. That's a godly thing. I know some of you think I'm crazy. This doesn't fit the meek image of ministers and you're just supposed to let people run over you. I take a lot of abuse. I take a lot of criticism. And if it's for the gospel, if it's because of what I preach, I've had people spit in my face. I never missed a word. I kept on talking. I've had people threaten to kill me. I've had a lot of things happen. We just got denied a loan because they said, your finances are perfect. You qualify financially, but you're a television ministry. We won't give you money. You know what? I could take offense over that and I could get upset and we could go 
hire somebody to try and sue them and do all this stuff. You know, that's, that's just part of the territory. If you live a godly life, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I don't get upset over stuff like that. But if you want to come steal my 20 bucks, I'll fight you for it. Amen. If it's not a spiritual thing, you know what? I'll fight you for it. And I believe that that's a godly thing. And this ought to be the response. Man, you cannot let terrorists come in and terrorize us and stuff. If I'd have been the president, I'm not sure what I'd have done. But I had the thought come to me that, you know what? You just say, we'll give you 24 hours to evacuate this area and we'll drop a bomb over there and wipe you all out. And those who are terrorists stay, those who aren't leave, and we'll solve this problem. Amen. So what I'm saying is there is a place to be angry. And that's what I talked about last night. What I want to do tonight is talk about a wrong type of anger. And this is what most people think of when you mention anger. This is the reason I'm titling this anger management. Because there, it is good to have anger. If you are passive, that's one of the reasons that Satan has inroad into your life. You've got to stir yourself up. But you have to manage this. You have to use it correctly. And I'm going to go into some things tonight, but let me just say this in a real uh, succinct way, try and get this point across, and then I'll make this point more during the night as we go through this. But the number one thing in my understanding about what separates righteous anger, a godly type of anger, from a sinful anger that is destructive, and all of us have experienced the uh, destructive anger and seen what it does to us and to other people. The number one difference between those things is basically whether what you are angry at, the motive behind your anger, whether it is self-serving or whether it is for the benefit of someone else. Now, that may not be obvious to you, but I'm going to say this so many different ways tonight that you'll get this. But you know what? If the reason you're angry is because somebody has touched me and you have been touched, your rights have been violated and you are angry nearly every time, you're going to find out that that is a demonic anger. Selfishness never figures in to God's methods. But say, for instance, somebody came up and was to attack my wife. You know what, if I, if I got angry and I rose up to defend her, not because of thinking about me and I'm thinking about, man, I'm going to have to pay her hospital bills. I'm going to have to, this is money out of my pocket. You know, if it's not selfish, but if it's because I love Jamie and man, I, if you touch her, you touch me. And I love her and I'm going to protect her. That's a godly attitude. That's a righteous anger. If the reason you are angry, like say for instance, you know, I use this example that if somebody was going to take money from me, man, I'd fight them. A friend of mine, I just talked to him on the phone today. He was over in England, came to one of my meetings and he had a woman walk up to him in the subway and say, uh, you know, it's late at night and said, give me your money. And uh, then a guy walked up behind him with a knife and stuck it in his back and he gave him his money, his credit card, everything he had. And he came to the meeting. We had to kind of help him out, bail him out because he didn't have anything. And, you know, he was, and most people would say, well, what else could you do? You know what? To me, that's not selfish in the sense that I'm afraid of losing my money. I mean, I've got money and I could get more money. But if we didn't 
allow things like that, if people fought and resisted, you know what they might do? There's going to be some people who will take advantage of others. But I guarantee you, if every time a person came up to rob somebody else, they were running the risk of getting the tar beat out of them or shot or something, you would have much less of that. And the reason I would resist isn't selfish. It's because I hate this, what's happening in our society. And the reason our society is going the direction it's going is because of the passiveness of people. And so that's what motivates me. It's not a selfish thing because I'm possessive of my money. Things aren't important to me. But you know what? Integrity and doing right is important. And I'd put my life on the line to defend what I believe is right. Thank you for that amen, Arabella. You are a blessing. Praise God. One amen out of this whole group. And you know what? Actually, the thing that keeps most people from having that attitude is selfishness. They're thinking about, man, this could cost me something. This person might hurt me. This person might do something to damage me. And it's actually selfishness that renders us powerless. Did you know that this attitude that allowed these terrorists to hijack these airliners and fly them into the World Trade Center and into the Pentagon, you know what it was? It was fear because of selfishness. And for years we've said if they hijack them, let them do whatever. Don't aggravate them. Let them take over. Pacify people who are doing evil. And because of that, a person with a box cutter overcame hundreds of people on an airplane and killed thousands of people and terrorized the nation because people would not rise up. When the fourth plane, they finally figured out what was going on and they realized that pacifying a terrorist is not the correct way. We will resist even if it means our death. They stopped what happened. It may have cost the lives on that plane, but they believed that that was headed towards Washington, D.C., possibly at the White House or at the... um, what do you call it, the uh, Capitol buildings and stuff, they could have saved thousands of lives. And you know what? There's many people that could have. They could have done that on those other planes if we hadn't have built a culture that says protect self. And if it costs thousands of other people dying to protect my life, well, then hang everybody else. Do what's easy for me. You know what that is? That's selfish. Selfishness will paralyze you And, believe it or not, selfish is what makes you angry in an ungodly manner. It all revolves around self. Let me share a scripture with you on this out of Proverbs chapter 10. You might want to look this up in your Bible because you wouldn't believe, or excuse me, this is Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10. You wouldn't believe that this is in the Bible if you don't read it. Some of you are going to disagree wholeheartedly with what I read. You're going to think, that's not me. Yeah, it is. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10. This is scripture. It says, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Now, this is talking about an evil contention. Again, there's a righteous anger. There are times that you're supposed to contend for godly things, but this is talking about an ungodly contention, strife, what it's talking about. Proverbs chapter 17 verse 14 says that the beginning of strife is is when one lets out water therefore leave off contention before it be meddled with. That verse is saying that contention is the beginning of strife. So when this says only by pride comes contention 
This is talking about an evil contention, and it's, this is a radical statement. It says only. It didn't say that for most people, what causes strife or contention in their life is pride. It didn't say for type A personalities, for certain types of people, for Americans, but it's different for others. It says only, only by pride comes contention. This is scripture. The only thing that makes you operate in strife, ungodly strife, anger is, is pride. That's it. There is no other option. Well, there's not too many amens on that one. You know, I was preaching on this one time in Pueblo, Colorado. And I ministered on this for a long time. And a guy came up after the service. He was a Hispanic man. And he says, you know, I've got a million problems. And I'll admit that I've got a lot of problems. I'm not trying to say I'm perfect. But pride isn't one of them. He says, if anything, I've got low self-esteem. I think I'm the scum of the earth. He says, I'm always criticizing and feeling down on myself. And I can guarantee you, I don't have pride. And he says, I am a very angry, bitter man. He says, I cannot understand this. Well, you've got to define pride the way the Bible does. We today have got a lopsided impression of pride. We think pride is arrogancy. We think that a person standing up and saying, I am the greatest and, and lifting themselves above other people, we call that pride. And it is pride. But that's only one manifestation of pride. You know what another manifestation of pride is? You need to hold on. Some of you are going to shock you. Timidness. Shyness is extreme pride. If you are a shy, timid person, you are a super proud person. And some of you think, oh, can't be. Well, it's just like a stick. You know, a stick has two opposite ends on it and they're always opposite each other. And the same stick of pride, one manifestation is arrogance, but the other side, the other extreme of that same thing is timidness, shyness. Because here's, here's what pride really is in its simplest form. Now, it can manifest in different ways, but in its simplest form, pride is nothing but selfishness, self-centeredness, thinking on self. And it doesn't matter if self thinks it's better than everybody else or if self thinks it's worse than everybody else, they are still self-centered. It's all about I, 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 me, me, me. And I can say this with conviction because before God intervened in my life, I was a super shy person. I was so such an introvert, I couldn't look at a person in the face and talk to them. Some of you might find that hard to believe, but it's the actual truth. I remember when I was a senior in high school walking down the street and a man walked by and said good morning and he was two blocks down the street before I got good morning back. And I went and sat in my car and thought, what is wrong with me? I'm 18 years old. I can't say hi to a person. I was an introvert. I was shy. And you know why? I can tell you what was going on on the inside of me. When I was introduced to a person... Instead of thinking about them, about who is this person? Man, I want to know about them. I'd like to know about who they are and what they have and what God's doing in their life. Instead of thinking about the other person, when I met a person, I was thinking about, oh no, here's, 
I wonder what they're going to think of me. I wonder if I'm going to say things right. Will I remember their name? What are they going to... And it was me, 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 I, I, I. It was absolute 100% selfish. And that's the reason I was timid and shy. There are some of you that God has done miracles for you. Some of you have been healed. Some of you have had marriages put back together. Some of you have seen great miracles in your life. You've got things that could bless other people. But if I was to ask you right now to come up here on this stage and just share what Jesus has done, some of you would freak. You would just freeze. And you couldn't communicate. Why? Because you don't have anything to say? Because God isn't good? Because you don't love God? No. You know what it is all about? What are people going to think of me? Me. Self. I. Your timidness. Your shyness is selfish. If you loved other people more than you loved yourself, you would do anything to get what God has done in your life out and share it with somebody else. You know why you don't witness to more people? Because of your self-love, because you're afraid somebody's going to reject you. So you would rather run the risk of letting people die and go to hell than somebody look at you and call you a fanatic. That's what it's all about. It's all selfish. That's it. And so what I'm trying to do here is to show you that when the Scripture says only by pride comes contention, it means just exactly what it says. You may not have thought you were a proud person, but if you are a selfish person, you are a proud person. If you're a timid person always thinking about what's everybody going to think about me, am I going to say everything right? You're a selfish, self-centered person person. That usually goes over about like that. (laughs) But it's the truth. You know, when I first started ministering, like I said, I was an introvert, and yet God just touched my life in such a miraculous way, I couldn't help it. I had to tell somebody. And I started preaching, and yet I would just, it was like the worst thing in my life. Jamie can tell you, I started a Bible study, and this is before we were married, and Jamie's one of my closest friends. We'd pray together and things, and she came over and would minister to me, and I'd just say, I can't do it, because I was literally paralyzed with fear of what people would think of me. I was an introvert, and yet I was forcing myself to preach, and it was pitiful. It was, you think it's pitiful now. It used to be much more pitiful than what it is. Man, I've come a long ways. And... I was just struggling and going back and forth. And it was so bad that for the first two years I preached, every time I ministered, I would be so humiliated. And I'd feel like, God, I embarrassed you and me both. And I would swear I'll never preach again. I'll never stand up in front of people again. I'd swear it. And I was serious. And yet it's like Jeremiah 29 says, it was like fire shut up in my bones. I couldn't forbear. And I just have to say, God, forgive me for that stupid oath. I got to do it again. And I'd try again. And yet it was just terrible. And I went back and forth like this. And finally I was in a service and I got up and ministered and it was pitiful. And this man came up to me afterwards and he says, you know, you've got some good things to say. And if you ever got to where you thought more about the people you ministered to than you did about yourself, you could be a blessing. And it was just like an arrow. And I saw, that's what's happening. You know what? It's all about me. I'm thinking only about me. And I changed 
And now when I minister, it's not about me. I know that there's people that have a lot smoother delivery than I do that don't talk with a hick accent. There's people that don't stumble and they're, they're all, you know, there's people that are a lot more than what I am. But I know that God has done something in my life. And I believe that every one of you need to know what I know. I believe that. And I'm thinking about you and I'm trying to get things out. And it's not about me. It's about you. And you know what? That delivered me of my shyness. I can tell you that my shyness, my timidness was selfishness. And I was willing to let other people die and go to hell rather than expose myself and potentially make a mistake. And now I've changed. I don't care what you think about me as long as you get hold of the truths that I'm trying to present. And that's changed my life. So what I'm trying to say through this is when the scripture says only by pride comes contention, you may think, oh no, that's not true with me. I can guarantee you it is. You just may need to redefine pride. Look at this verse over in Numbers chapter 12. This will help you to redefine what pride is. In Numbers chapter 12, or that's not right. Oh, I'm not in Numbers. <laughs> Exodus, Leviticus. See, man, there's other people that could do this a lot better than I can do it. All right, Numbers chapter 12. It says, And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Moses was... Um, a Jew had a complexion like an Arab, Middle Eastern, and uh, an Ethiopian was black. So this was an interracial marriage. Moses married a black woman and his brother and sister spoke against him because of this marriage. And in verse 2 it says, And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. In other words, it's saying that it was their criticism was related to his interracial marriage. And they were criticizing him. They, they quit esteeming him and valuing him because he had done something and in their opinion was wrong. And so they began to criticize him and put him down and criticize his leadership and say, you aren't the only one God speaks through. We are God's vessels. And they were challenging his authority. And look at this in verse 3. It says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. That is one awesome statement. We don't know exactly how many people were on the face of the earth, but we know that Moses led over three million Jews out of Egypt and they were the minority. So there had to be more than three million Egyptians. There was probably five, ten million or whatever. And then there were the people in the promised land. And so who knows? There was 10 million, 20 million, 50 million people on the face of the earth. Who knows how many people? And Moses was the meekest man upon the face of the earth. That is one awesome statement. And you know what makes this even more powerful is that Moses is the one that wrote this. Now see the way most people divide, de define humility, they think that humility is just thinking you're the scum of the earth and you never exalt yourself, you never say anything nice, you never say anything good. That would be pride. But... You can criticize yourself, put yourself down. You can knock yourself down as low as you want to, and that's humility. No, that's not. That's stupidity. True humility is not going above what God says about you or below it. 
True humility is just having no opinion about yourself. You aren't going to slant it either direction. But see, religion has given us such a hatred for arrogancy that people will debase themselves when they don't really mean it just because that's a religious posture. It's hypocritical and they're actually looking for a backhanded compliment. Probably all of you have heard somebody stand up before and say, well, the Lord says, make a joyful noise. I'm not a very good singer, but I'm just going to make a joyful noise. You all pray for me. And then they begin to sing, and they've had 10 years of operatic training, and they got this awesome voice. And You know what they're doing? That's a religious con to knock themselves down, fishing for a compliment, hoping that you'll come up and say, hey, you really got a great voice. You shouldn't have said that about yourself. And if you don't believe that, go up to them in the supermarket during the week and say, man, you were right. I think that's the sorriest voice I've ever heard, but it was joyful. Tell them that and see if they'll say, well, yes, brother, that's what I told you. (laughs) Man, they'll slap you. Their temper will rise up because you know what? They were self-centered. They don't believe they've got this bad voice, but that's just a way that we have of knocking ourselves down when you don't really mean it and we think that's humility. No, that's pride. You're afraid of what everybody's going to say. Moses wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... I am the meekest man on the face of the earth. True humility is saying about yourself what God says. If God says you're righteous, and you say, oh, I'd never say I'm righteous, then you're proudful, prideful. You're arrogant because you are exalting your opinion above God. A truly humble person is a person who just doesn't care about themselves. And if God says you're a jerk, they'll say, I'm a jerk. God just told me I'm a jerk. And if God says you are the greatest person in this room, they'll say, God told me I'm the greatest person in this room. Isn't that awesome? That's a humble person. You know, right now, out of all these people in this auditorium, there has to be somebody who is meeker than anybody else. There has to be somebody who's the most humble person in this auditorium. Now, if I was to, I'm not asking you to do this, but if I was to ask you to bow your heads And close your eyes and let's everybody pray. And let's ask God to just speak to us and show us who's the meekest person in this auditorium. And if God speaks to you, then you raise your hand and let us know that you're the meekest person. And if you would think, I'd never do that. What would people think about me? Then you aren't the meekest person. A truly meek, humble person would say, Father, who is it? And if God says it's somebody next to you, you'd rejoice and say, man, what a great privilege to be sitting next to the meekest person in this room. But if God said it's you, you'd say, man, this is awesome. God told me I was the meekest. And you'd stand up and say it and not even think about what people are going to say. True humility is not just, you know, not just debasing yourself, but it's just having no opinion about yourself. It's not being self-centered. You know, people who are heroes and rescue other people, I've, I've studied this a little bit, and I remember one instance like where a plane crashed in Washington, D.C., and it slid off the runway and into this uh, icy water, and people were drowning in this plane, and bystanders, people stopped their car, it was in a snowstorm, people got out, and they started diving in and rescuing people, and there was two or three of the bystanders who were swimming back and forth, and making trips and carrying people to safety, there was a few of them that actually died, gave their life trying to rescue other people who were in trouble. 
And some of the people lived through it. The paramedics got them and were able to stabilize them. And they interviewed them on television. And I remember specifically, they asked this one guy who was just driving by, stopped, saw the problem, dove in, made multiple trips back and forth and saved a number of people's lives. They interviewed him and they said, why did you do it? And he said, well, because people were hurting and they needed help. And this interviewer said, well, what about your wife and kids? He had saved a young child's life and had carried this child back to shore. And he says, what about your family? Don't you have kids? And he said, yeah, I've got kids. And he said, well, didn't you think about your kids? And your kids could have been fatherless. Why would you sacrifice your life to help somebody else's child that you've never known? And this guy gave an answer that was really revealing. And he says, honestly, I never thought about my kids. I never thought about myself. All I could think about was this person. And that's the reason that he was able to give his life and sacrifice his life, make it, put it on the altar. You know what? If we, if you saw somebody in trouble and if you were to sit down and think, man, is my insurance paid up? Is that premium good? Uh, my, you know, are my children any worse or better than their children? Why are, you know, maybe I've got three children. How do I know that this isn't the only child? Maybe it'd be better for me to prepare and remain a father for my three children rather than just let this child die. If you were to start thinking of things like that, none of us would ever do anything heroic. The people who do something heroic, who lay their life down, are people that honestly are not self-centered. They're thinking about somebody else more than themselves. You know, we've got troops tonight all over the world. And I guarantee you there's hardships on those troops. But the ones who are doing it with the right attitude, they don't deny that there's hardships, but they're looking at a cause and they say, you know what, it's worth it. If I don't put my life on the line and if I don't stand for something, man, we this freedom and liberty that we've got and all of the people who are criticizing and talking against this nation and stuff, they wouldn't have the freedom to do it. I guarantee you the Iraqis would not give you the freedom to criticize their government. They'd kill you. And some people have enough presence of mind to say, even though I'm separated from my family, even though I missed Christmas, you know what, there's something more important than me. And the people who are sitting there and thinking, man, let them do whatever because it hasn't happened to you yet, it's actually selfishness. But when it knocks on your door, when you get terrorized, when somebody does something to you, then you're going to rise up and be angry because, again, self-centeredness is what makes this whole world go out of whack. God did not make us to be self-centered. Adam and Eve, did you know when they sinned, the Scripture says that they realized they were naked and they hid themselves. And you know, there was a lot more to it than just the fact that they were naked. Man, they had introduced murder, adultery, homosexuality, terrible things into the world. There was so much that happened, more than just them realizing they were naked. Why was that such a big deal? And I'm reading between the lines. I could do a long teaching on this. I've got a tape set entitled Christian Philosophy, Part 1, that'll deal with this, three tapes. But you know basically what the deal was with them being naked? They weren't more naked after they sinned than they were before they sinned. Some people think they were. Some people think they were clothed in the glory of God. And symbolically, you can talk about that. But literally speaking, there wasn't any light clothing them. They weren't one stitch more naked after they sinned than they were before they sinned. The only thing that changed was 
they perceived and realized they were naked. And what the significance of that is, prior to their sin, they were so God-conscious, they never thought about whether they had on any clothes or not. (laughs) Amen. Now, that's God-conscious. They weren't thinking about themselves. They never paid attention to whether they were naked or not. But after they sinned, they became self-aware, self-conscious. Sin ushered in selfishness. God did not create us to be selfish beings. God created us to be like Him. God so loved the world that He gave. We were created in His image. And selfishness is totally a fallen characteristic that rules and dominates this world. We were not intended to be that way. And all anger has its root of selfishness. If you were not self-loving and loving yourself more than somebody else, you would not be angry at them and treat them the way that you do. You know, the Bible says we're supposed to be dead unto ourselves. If you took a corpse and laid a corpse out here in front of me tonight, I could kick that corpse, spit on the corpse, yell at the corpse, insult the corpse, ignore the corpse, and if it's dead, it wouldn't care. God told you to be dead. And if you were dead to yourself, if you didn't love yourself more than you love other people, you wouldn't care about what people say about you. You wouldn't care about whether somebody gives you the recognition, whether you get the acclaim. You know why it bothers you so much and we've got chips on our shoulders and we do the things we do? Because we love ourselves so much. You can't control everybody else. Some people are trying to use their faith to say, Oh God, remove all jerks from my path today. Oh God, take this person out. Nobody's going to speak evil of me. Nothing bad's going to happen today. Today's going to be a great day. Why? Because you have used your faith to get rid of all opposition. That's not a scriptural method. The Bible didn't tell you to pray and remove all temptation. It told you not to yield to temptation. You cannot change other people. Satan has more than enough people. He's got people that if he has to, he can import some in here. But he's got people that I guarantee you are going to cooperate with him and there's always going to be somebody who can push your hot button. There is never going to be a time that there is not opposition and resistance and criticism towards you. But what you can do, you can die to yourself. You can deal with this self-love and get to where you love other people more than yourself. And if you do that, it won't matter what people do to you. It won't matter what your mate says or doesn't say to you if you don't love yourself more than everybody else. That's true. You know, I saw a show on TV once that was uh, against capital punishment. They were trying to sway opinions so that nobody would believe in capital punishment. What they did was take a man who had raped a woman, murdered her trying to cover up his sin, and got caught, tried. He was on death row, and they had a picture of him. When they showed him in his cell, here was this drab cell. And he was sitting there and he had his hands, you know, cradling his head and his knees on his legs. And he was just sad and depressed. They went to black and white, went out of color to make it even more drab and more emotional. They showed this dingy, terrible thing. They were playing sad, morbid music. And then they went down the hallway and showed where he would be executed and put to death. He was on death row. And then they came back and showed this man... 
And then to even make it stronger, they started showing his baby pictures. They showed this man's baby pictures. And you know what? When you see, I I believe in capital punishment. I'm not excited about it. It's not something that blesses me, but Genesis 9 and other places say that you're supposed to, if a person kills another, that he's supposed to pay with with his life. And I believe it is a deterrent, and I believe in capital punishment. But anyway... Uh, even though I believe in capital punishment, when you see a person that's going to be executed and they show you his baby pictures, it's hard to think that someday that baby is going to be killed for what they've done. Regardless of what it is, it's just hard. It plays on your emotions. And then they showed him growing up. They showed him playing and riding a little stick horse. He had these toy guns on his side and playing. And then at five years old, he was sexually abused by his father and he began to start being mistreated. He grew up in reformatories. He was rejected. Terrible things happened. And by the time they came up to where he committed this crime, you saw his background. You felt so bad for the guy that here I was believing in capital punishment, but yet I had the thought and the feeling of saying, God, there's got to be another way. Is this really the best way to deal with this situation? And while I was watching that and thinking about it, the Lord just spoke to me and he says, What would happen if you took this same audience that has seen these things and has had all of these emotions stirred and there's pity and sympathy towards this man, even though he's done a terrible thing? What would happen if you took the same audience and showed them the girl's baby pictures that he raped? And you showed her growing up and her innocency and suppose that she was a Christian and she had an engagement to a guy and all of these great plans... And yet, some pervert comes into his, her life and for self-gratification rapes her and then isn't even man enough to stand up to his own crime and so kills her, not even valuing her life, just hating life and doing all of these things. If you took the same crowd that right now is feeling mercy towards this guy and showed them the woman's side of the story, the same people would turn into a vigilante committee that would want to lynch the guy. And God just threw that, spoke to me, and He says it is 100% dependent on how you view things. If you view life through selfish, thinking about me, what about my rights, then you know what? You're going to be an angry person, and you're going to be doing things. Somebody's going to pull in front of you in traffic and cut you off and not use their blinker or... Do something and you know what? You're going to rise up and you have any, don't raise your hand. Have any of you ever gotten upset and said something about somebody who just pulled in front of you and did something? And has that ever ticked you off and made you a little upset? What could happen if you say, for instance, could see into the heart of that person? And let's say that they had just come from the hospital and they got a report that their mate that they've been with for 50 years is going to die. And they just heard about this. And because of that, their mind wasn't really on driving the way that it should. And they were hurting. Maybe they were crying. Maybe they're going through a divorce. Maybe something else has happened. And because of that, God forbid, they forgot to turn on a blinker. If you could know those things about that person, if you could see why they're... Now, there are some people that are jerks and just pull in front of it. But let's say that somebody honestly did something and you saw that they were under terrible pressure and hurt and heartache 
wouldn't you feel compassion instead of judgment if you could see why they were doing what they're doing? But the truth is, you know what? Most of us don't ever think about what the other person is thinking. All you think about is they offended me. They touched me. I am the center of the universe. How dare anybody do something that doesn't in, uh, take into account me? We think that we are it. Amen or oh me. And I tell you, that's what makes you angry. That's what causes you to do the things you do is because you are so in love with self. Did you know if you loved your mate more than you loved yourself, when they get angry and bitter and say something to hurt you, your first thought would be, God, what's going on with them? What has happened to them? Why are they bitter? You'd find out at least half the time or more that they're bitter because of what you did to them. And you know what? It would change your whole thing. But instead, most of us only think about ourselves. My brother, I'm the kind that had, everybody's got a temper. But when I would get angry or bitter, I would just turn it inward and I would just simmer. You know, medical science people will tell you that that's actually worse than the person that has a temper and blows up. You may hurt somebody else and embarrass yourself, but you get it out of your system. I'd let something just fume on the inside of me for days or weeks or months. That's still temper. That's still anger. But I never vented it. I never said things and did things. My brother is the kind, he'd just beat the tar out of you. I nearly got killed a bunch of times. He came close to killing me a number of times. And anyway, my brother had this temper, but when it was over, he would always come to me and he'd say, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I was hurting you. Forgive me. And you know what he was saying by doing that? He was saying, I was only thinking of me. I was selfish. I didn't think about you or I wouldn't have hurt you. I can promise you, any of you that have a temper, some of you think, well, I, this is the way I was. I'm redhead. I'm Irish. I'm Italian. We've got a million and one excuses for being who we are but I'm telling you the reason you have a temper is because you are the center of the universe and you don't give a rip about anybody but you. That's the reason you've got a temper. Now you can sit here and say, you can blame it on this and blame it on that. And I was raised in an ang angry family. Those are things up here. But if you just keep peeling back the layers, the bottom line is only by pride comes contention. The only thing that has made you have an ungodly anger is the fact that you are so focused on self. You evaluate everything in the light of you and you are only thinking about you and that is what makes you such an angry person. If you loved other people more than you loved yourself, I can guarantee you, you would be a merciful, forgiving person. If you always thought about the other person more than you thought about yourself, you would always be a kind person. You can't be merciful and be selfish. And you can't be mad without being selfish. It's just the way that God made us. Selfishness is an attribute that came in from the fall. It's not the way God made us to be. God Himself isn't that way. God loved us more than He loved Himself. He sacrificed Himself and He said, this is the greatest love that a man lay down his life for another. 
God created us to be selfless, and yet selfishness has become the norm. As a matter of fact, our society today promotes self, and we we will get to where you take minority groups and forget how many people it inconveniences. I've got rights. It's all about self-rights, and you will make the whole nation pay extra taxes to accommodate your handicap, to give you this advantage. And it doesn't matter what anybody else pays, self has rights. I am going to promote self. I'm going to take care of self. That attitude stinks. It is an ungodly attitude, and it's at the root of all of our grief, of all of our suffering. Did you know even in death, if the person who dies is a Christian, and if you grieve, you know why you're grieving? It's for self. If the person is a Christian, they are in the presence of God, and they are enjoying God and the truth. It's not, I'm not saying that it's wrong for you to miss the person and love them. There's nothing wrong with that, but I'm saying it helps you to understand that it's not because of, oh, this is tragic what happened to this person. No, the truth is it's tragic what happened to you and you don't have them around anymore. I had an employee whose little daughter died uh, in a pool that he dug. She was one year old and she fell in this pool and she drowned. And I went there and there was hundreds of people that came by and as we sat there and and listen to people come by and they viewed the body, they would say, oh, this is terrible. She's never going to know what it's like to go to her first day of school. She never got a tricycle. She's never done this. She's never going to get married. And they would talk and they'd just cry and talk about how tragic it was. Those things are tragic. But you know what? This guy finally, there was hundreds of people gathered and he asked me to do a little memorial service. And I thought, God, how am I going to comfort people? This is tragic what happened. Basically, what I said, I got up and I told him, I said, you know, I heard people say about she's never going to get her tricycle. She'll never know the first day of school. She'll never know her first kiss. She'll never go to the prom. She'll never graduate. She'll never get married. She'll never have kids. And I just assured him, I said, I can guarantee you being in the presence of the Lord and having Jesus love you is greater than a tricycle, first day of school, first kiss. And I just assured them, I said, I can guarantee you this little girl is going to miss, not the tricycle, but she will miss the hurt, the rejection, the criticism, the pain, the sickness. The... And I just began to tell them about how good off she was. And then I said, look, we, we are going to miss her, but recognize that it's us we're grieving for. We aren't going to get to see her first day of school. We aren't going to get to have the joy of these things. You know what? Our grief, I've got a tape entitled Self-Centeredness, the Source of All Grief. All grief in your life revolves around selfishness. If you loved other people, if you loved God first and other people more than you loved yourself, your grief would be cut to nearly zero. That's an awesome statement. But it's true. So, and we're talking about anger, and people want to say, well, the way to deal with anger is count to ten. (laughs) And we got all of these little things that we do to deal with anger. I'm not telling you that there's no benefit to that, but I'm saying you're putting a band-aid on an amputated limb. It's just not sufficient. You need to go to the root of it. And you know what the root of your anger is? It's the fact that you love yourself. And self is like a drug addiction. It can never be satisfied. 
If you indulge yourself and try and satisfy yourself, you're always going to be disappointed. This is why marriages are failing today. One of the major reasons is because self has been exalted and promoted and we think I've got rights and I've got a God-given right to be happy. I've got a God-given right that everybody's going to treat me right. It's not so. And you go in expecting this person to be the person that makes you happy. Most of us didn't marry a person who we could lay our life down and help make them the person that they're supposed to be. That's God's kind of love. You know what most of us did? We sought for someone who we thought would make us happy. We weren't weren't in the giving mode. We were in the taking mode. You women went and got the guy that was the captain of the football team and Mr. America and the... So that when people said, oh, this is your husband, they could admire him and it would make you feel better and it would stroke your ego. And then they lose their hair. (laughs) They get the chest or drawers disease. That's where your chest is done dropped down into your drawers. Amen. And all of a sudden, he's not this person that when people see you, they say, oh, aren't you so lucky to have this hunk? As your husband, and all of a sudden you say, I just don't feel love for him anymore. You never did feel love for him. You felt love for yourself, and it was a way for you to satisfy self. He was just like you stuck a straw in a soda and sucked it until you got all of the good out of it. And when you hear, and they no longer can benefit you, I've lost my love, and we just can't fight it. You never did love him. All you did was use him up. Now you're going to go get somebody else and use them up and you can't understand why you never are satisfied. You can't satisfy self. The only way to satisfy self is to deny it and quit indulging it and learn that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive and learn that, man, it's in losing your life that you really find out what life is all about. This is what Jesus taught. The world is teaching, satisfy self, take care of self, promote number one above everybody else. Jesus says, die to yourself. Put him first. Seek first the kingdom of God. Love other people. Esteem others better than yourself. Colossians chapter 2, or where is that? Anyway, Philippians chapter 2, esteem others better than yourself. That's what Jesus taught. And yet, see, we do just the opposite. And most of us aren't even aware of what we're doing. We just think, well, if I don't take care of me, who will? God. If you put God first, God will take care of you. You'll be happier. You'll be more satisfied if you quit loving yourself. You are not the center of the universe. Here is simple, great theology. There is only one God, and you are not Him. We worship ourself. And let me just say, I'm not saying this to criticize you, to put you down. I'm saying this to enlighten us because as long as you think that it's that woman that you gave me that's the problem, then you're never going to deal with the problem. The problem wasn't God. The problem wasn't Eve. The problem was Adam. The problem isn't what other people have done to you. The problem isn't your mate. It's not your mate that's made your life miserable. It's the way you respond to your mate that makes your life miserable. It's the fact that you love yourself so much. Man, I could give you so many testimonies. Real quickly, let me just tell you about this woman who used to work for me. She had a husband and two children by the first husband. Her first husband died. 
She inherited three corporations, a lot of money in it. She was stressed out. She walked into a daylight donut shop and a man walked up, told her her name, had never seen her before, told her her name and said, I'm God and if you will worship me, I'll solve your problems. This woman wasn't born again and so she worshiped him and married the guy and he became her husband. Well, the guy could quote all of the New Testament. He was a Baptist deacon and yet he was demon-possessed. He would leave his body at night and scratch at the wall. He would levitate tables. Demons came through. He took a hot iron... uh, uh, What was it? He broke her neck one time in a fight. He poured hot grease over her and gave her third-degree burns, tried to do all of these things, and he kept the kids in the basement. And if they ever came out of the basement, he was going to kill the kids. And this is when I met her. She had just gotten born again a short time before this, and he tried to kill the children, and the police had them separated on the front lawn. And anyway, they brought her to me and said, Tell this woman she doesn't have to live with this man who's doing this. And so I said, You don't have to live with this man. Just like that. About that sincere. And they looked at me, and she says, What do you mean? I said, Well, the Bible says, If he's pleased to dwell with you, stay. Doesn't sound like he's pleased to dwell with you to me. You're free to go. And she says, but, and I said, but, you don't have to go. You're free to go. It didn't tell you you have to go. And she says, how could I stay in a home where the guy's abusive? And I said, well, if you don't have faith, you can't. But I said, if you have faith, it's just the devil in him that makes him act the way he is. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And I said, I can teach you how to overcome that. Anyway, this woman came to work for me. It's a long story. But I started telling her, She was mad at him and hated him. And you know what? Most people would say she was justified in it. Well, she is if you consider that yourself and your rights are more important than anything else. But I told her, I said, you know what? The reason you are so hurt and angry is because you love yourself so much. And I know many of you right now are just throwing darts at me. But it says only by pride. Most people would say, no, that's justified. You know what? I taught her how to love that guy. And she started thinking about where he's coming from. And she went back, found out when he was born in Jamaica, he was dedicated to Satan. There was blood offered. He was given to Satan at birth. He was raised demon-possessed. She began to have a love and a pity for this guy. And she began to have godly compassion for this man who had done her so much damage. They went to a marriage counselor who was a friend of mine. This guy should have known better. But he asked the man first for his side of the story. And he said, well, she's broken my neck. She's poured hot grease over me. She levitates tables. He accused her of everything he had done. This marriage counselor got so mad, he stood up and yelled at her. And his wife had to pull him down. And finally, he controlled himself and he said, okay, what's your side of the story? And he asked the woman. Now, let me ask you, if (laughs) your mate had lied and done all of those things and accused you of all of this and you weren't guilty in the first place, would you have ever waited for somebody to ask for your side of the story? I guarantee you, most of you, they couldn't have gotten two words out of their mouth before. You would have been justifying self, defending self. Self, promoting self. She let him just rail on her. Then when the guy asked, what's your side of the story? She said, I used to think he was my problem, but he's not. She says, it's me that's the problem. She says, I'm as much a part of the problem in this marriage as he is. I haven't loved him. I haven't honored him as a wife should. And she just started talking about the things God was speaking to her. 
Many of you think, terrible. You know what the results of this was? The marriage counselor said, divorce her. And he wouldn't even see him anymore. He says, this is over. Divorce this evil woman. When they left that place, the man looked at her and he said, why didn't you defend yourself? And she says, God has already healed me and taken care of my hurt. And she says, I came here to get you help. And if running me down is going to help you deal with this, that's fine. Amen. And you know what this guy did? It scared the devil out of him. He lost his powers to levitate and do things. He left her. And for six months, he was gone. She got the kids out of the basement and started ministering to them. Finally, he got born again, came back home. Their marriage was restored. And then they had problems because he wanted to go to Ramah and become a preacher. And she didn't want to be a preacher's wife. And all this happened because somebody loved the mate more than they loved themselves. Most of us sitting in here would be so focused on our rights that we would give minor concessions to our mate and we would take care of self at all costs. That's not the attitude that Jesus had. Jesus gave everything he had for us. That's a godly attitude. Selfishness is an ungodly attitude. Thank you for that thunderous silence. I need to end. Let me end with this right here. I'm sorry I've gone long, but you know what? You just don't hear many people talk about this, and so I've got to talk about it while I got you. Amen. At least I'm over my shyness. But you know why we're so selfish? You were born that way. When you came into this earth, your mother had been up all night long giving birth. Man was tired, needing to sleep, and you didn't give a rip about her. When you wanted to be fed, when you wanted to have your diaper changed, you cried, you'd wake. You know, if you bring a little weak old baby into this church service tonight, they don't care about anybody wanting to hear the word and about what you were wanting to receive. They don't know that anybody else exists. They will cry. They will interrupt the entire service. They will throw a fit, a temper tantrum, and not care about anybody else They are the only person that exists. They are the center of their universe. Every one of us was born that way. And it's not wrong if you're a week old. But the problem is, see, parents are supposed to train our children out of this. We're supposed to get our children away from selfishness. We're supposed to teach our children to deny themselves. It's in losing your life that you find life. It's better to give than it is to receive. But you know what? Very few parents have learned the lesson themselves, and so they just reinforce selfishness. When a kid throws a temper tantrum in a grocery store, and you know the parent says, no, you can't have that candy. We're going to go home and eat supper, and you can't have this candy. It'll spoil your meal. All a kid has to do is fall down on the floor, scream and cry and throw a fit. And you know what most parents will do? Because they are self-centered, they'll think, oh, what's everybody thinking? Everybody's looking at me. Everybody's going to think you got this brat and you will give your kid what they want, not because it's best for them, but because it's best for you and you would rather hurt your child. You don't think of it this way, but you would rather do whatever it takes to shut your child up and satisfy self than to do what's best for the child. And by doing so, you just reaffirm reestablish selfishness. And the problem is that we are now 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 year old adult brats 
that never have learned that somebody else is more important than you are. You are not the center of the universe. And most of us are just nothing but adult brats. We no longer fall on the floor, suck our thumb, throw a fit. What we do is, they offended me, so you aren't going to talk to them for three or four days until you just turn the cold shoulder and punish them enough. It's just an adult tantrum. You just need to pull the thumb out of your mouth and grow up and get out of being self-centered. You were born that way. And somebody's got to tell you the truth. You may not like what I've said, but I'm telling you the truth. And this would change your life. And somebody would say, man, how do I change this? Well, the first thing is you've got to recognize that self-love and self being God in your life is not good. God needs to be important, more important to you than yourself. Other people need to be more important to you. I'm not saying you hate yourself, treat yourself right, but love other people more than you love yourself. You have to, first of all, learn that that is the right standard. Most of us don't go that direction because it's never said. In our society today, self is promoted and glorified. I'm telling you, this is not what the Word of God teaches. It's your selfishness, pride, that makes you contentious and angry. And if you would die to yourself, you could reverse that. So the first step is knowing that that is the right thing. You have to change your model, what you're believing for. And then you have to commit. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, I am persuaded that he is faithful and just to keep that which I commit unto him. No committing, no keeping. You have to make a commitment and say, Father, I'm sorry, I didn't realize this. I, I really believe with most people in our society, this is an ignorance type of thing. We just haven't heard the truth, and the truth will make you free. you got to hear it. And so, you know, it's amazing to me. This is a mean message. It's a hard message. And yet when I give an invitation, it's not unusual to see 80, 90% of the people that stand up and say, I'm an adult brat. People respond to this because they haven't heard it. And so once you hear it, you have to make a commitment and say, Father, forgive me. I turn from this and I'm making a commitment that I'm going to put God first. And once you make that commitment, then God will hold you to it. But here's another great piece of information. It says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we are supposed to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You were supposed to sacrifice self. You were supposed to give up self-love and self-desires to put God and other people first. But the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. This is not just a decision you make one time and say, all right, I'm going to die to self and I'll never have another problem with self. The only way you can get rid of self, I've actually had people come up after a message like this and say, please cast self out of me. I can't cast self out of you. The only way I can get you separated from self is to kill you and let you go to heaven and get a new self, a glorified self. But right now, you have a self, a self-consciousness that you have to deal with and you can't deal with it one time. You can't just kill it literally, physically. What you have to do is deny it and it has to be a daily thing of you dying to yourself, denying yourself. It is a progressive decision. You start someplace but you don't ever arrive. You just have to start and you have to deal with it. And it's a continual process over and over and over. 
You know, a good illustration of this is I was talking to Jim Irwin, the guy that walked on the moon, an astronaut, and he said that they shot that capsule towards the moon. And I always thought, you know, the technology was just awesome. That thing went straight to the moon. It landed on the exact spot they had picked. And I was in Vietnam when that happened. I was really interested, so I was asking him all of these questions. We swapped books, and he was telling me, and I said, so man, the technology. He says, no, it wasn't like that at all. He said, we blasted off. They threw the capsule towards the moon, and every 10 minutes for four and a half days, we had a course correction. And he said, sometimes our capsule was going 90 degrees opposite to the moon, and we would have a course correction. And then sometimes it was just a fraction off. But he said the truth was we didn't go straight towards the moon. We went like this. And, he, and then they had a 500-mile landing strip. And he said that when he got out of the lunar lander, they were within five feet of missing a 500-mile long landing strip. They just barely landed in the area that they wanted to. But they made it. And as he was telling me this, the Lord just spoke to me. And he says, that's the way it is with dealing with self. You don't ever just, all right, I'm going to make a commitment and I'm not going to love self. I'm going to put others first and then it's settled. No, but you do have to blast off. Some of you didn't know you were supposed to leave. You thought where you were was just fine. Some of you didn't even know where the blast off pad was. You, This is radical thing and you've never done anything to deny yourself. You thought protecting yourself is the way it's supposed to be. I'm telling you, you need to change. So you make a decision and you blast off and head in that direction. But you know what? You will have a course correction every 10 minutes for the rest of your life. There may be somebody who gets out there and gets the last tape set that you wanted and you will have a course correction before you get out of this auditorium tonight. Somebody may want to pull in front of you in a lane going out and you've got an opportunity to say, I'm putting you ahead of me. Go ahead. Go first. I can guarantee you, you will have a course correction every 10 minutes for the rest of your life. But you've got to start. And some of you have never had the conscious thought that anybody or anything is more important than you. And you've got to change that. You've got to receive this truth and make a commitment and say, God, I commit that from now on, I am not going to love self more than I love my mate, more than I love other people. I'm going to love you first and foremost and exalt other people above myself. I am not the center of the universe. You have to make that decision. Nobody can make it for you. It's your choice. Amen? And I want to give an invitation tonight, and I want to present it this way. Everybody in here has got a self. And even though some of you have understood this, and you've dealt with yourself, and you've started in this direction, and you've put other people ahead of yourself, everybody in here could do it better. Nobody in here has ever dealt with self perfectly. All of us have faults and failures. And so some of you tonight, this is your course correction. But you've already blasted off. You've seen this truth. You're headed in that direction. And this is a course correction. It may be a major course correction or a minor one. But for some of you, it's nothing but a course correction. But there's others in here that maybe you've thought some things. But this, this is revelation to you. This is not a course correction. You love self more than you should. And you are a self-centered adult brat. 
and you'd just admit it and say, man, this is revelation. I have never dealt with this. You know what? When you receive this and deal with it, you know it. I can tell you, March the 23rd, 1968, is when God spoke this into my life, and I dealt with it, and I'm still dealing with it, but I can tell you a time and a place and exactly what happened. There's some of you in here that have never loved anybody or anything more than you love yourself. You are the God of this world, the God of your life. And you need to repent. And you need to put God first. It's not a course correction for you. This is a total around about face. And you need to humble yourself. And for those of you that would say, this isn't a course correction for me. This is an absolute total turn of my life. I've got to change and commit myself to put somebody else ahead of myself. For those of you who would say, that's me, I want to ask you to be humble enough right now to just stand right where you are and say, I'm an adult brat that loves self more than I love God and other people, and I want to repent. If that's you, I want you to be bold enough to just stand while everybody's head is up and your eyes are open. I want you to stand. The purpose of this is for humbling yourself and denying yourself. What am I going to do? Ask everybody to bow their head and close their eyes so you won't be embarrassed? I'm on you to be embarrassed. This is denying self. Amen. This is a great opportunity for you to act on what we're talking about. And if you're one of those thinking, well, what's everybody going to think? You know what? You're selfish. You need to, for the first time, think about what's God going to think. God, I'm going to make a commitment. I'm going to commit something to you. I'm going to put what you think about me as more important than what other people think about me. Anyone else? I don't want anybody standing up after I start praying for these people. If you're going to do it, I want you to do it while our head is up and our eyes are open. I'm going to specifically pray this won't work if you're seated. you got to stand to get this. Anybody else? I always get some people. You know, there's some of you that we're going to bootleg this prayer. Sit down and let me pray it. And you and your heart, we're going to receive it. It's not going to work that way. You've got to stand up and humble yourself, and then God will exalt you. Father, I thank you for all of these people who have received the Word of God tonight.